Welcome to Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name is Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also podcasting as part of the Tej FM network. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. Tune in, subscribe, and find out what's happening in your community and around the state. Later in the show, we'll hear from Richmond-based journalist Peter Galeska, plus an interview with Dr. Deborah McDowell on preserving the legacy of civil rights activist and former UVA professor Julian Bond. But right now, we're joined here in the studio by Charlottesville Tomorrow reporter Charlotte Woods and news editor Elliot Robinson. Both have been working on a comprehensive guide to all the local elections in the Charlottesville-Albemarle area, from the school board to the Virginia State Senate. Y'all have been working really hard on updating your voter guide following the primaries and going into the November elections. Could you give us an update on a couple of the local races? So regarding city council, Lloyd Snook, uh, Michael Payne, and Cena McGill made it through as the Democratic candidates. They are um, rallying together against uh, the three independent candidates, Bellamy Brown, Paul Long, and John Edward Hall. That Those are the people who will be on the ballot in November. The Ravana District had a primary as well with B. Lapista Kirtley and Gerard Smith. A very, very, very tight race. Ultimately, B. ended up on top. And the sheriff's race for Albemarle County had a primary, a Democratic primary, between Patrick Estes and Chan Bryant, which Chan Bryant made it through, and now she'll be facing an independent challenger, Ronnie Roberts, in November. Could you tell us a little bit more about that sheriff's race in Albemarle County? I think that the Albemarle County sheriff's race is going to be another really tight one. I honestly don't know who is going to get it at this point because Chan Bryan um, has the endorsement of the outgoing sheriff. And then Ronnie Roberts has been involved in police and law enforcement in the Charlottesville Albemarle area for a very long time. Everyone knows who he is. So it's, it's going to be really tough and really tight to see who ends up pulling through in November. What issues seem most pressing in this round of elections? Definitely the Dillon rule versus home rule. It has popped up whether I've asked it or candidates have initiated it across all of the races pretty much. It's a, It was a legal rule that basically says that municipalities, like cities, are creatures of the state that they're in, so they only have powers that the state government gives to them, and a home rule state would allow cities to make their own decisions for a lot of the day-to-day operations that have larger implications. There's some people who are leaning towards uh, home rule. There's some people who are in favor of keeping Dillon rule. And there's some people who are noting the nuances within it and where they would suggest hybrid models or areas you can loosen up certain things. Because the Dillon rule can be helpful with business contracts around the state. When you think about Capital One, how they have offices near Richmond and in Northern Virginia, And then also you think about stormwater management and water runoff with all the rivers around the state. Having, you know, set regulations statewide can be beneficial in those areas. But then also when you think about a topic that Charlottesville feels very closely about with the monuments and how you can't remove them because it has to kind of, you have to get permission from the General Assembly. And it seems like there should be some sort of adjustment made to it because, for example, the Charlottesville City Council are doing just some minor copy editing of their charter and they have to submit those changes to the General Assembly and you would think that they should be able to rewrite a sentence so it doesn't say chairman throughout or move a comma without having to have a formal vote in Richmond for it. It is 
very interesting to see how a lot of the localities in Virginia are hamstrung by the Dillon rule when you have places who are a lot further south and seem more steeped in southern or confederate history like new orleans for example the city council made a vote and could remove their confederate statues almost immediately and meanwhile in charlottesville has taken a few years now and there's still issues tied up in the courts and there will be a decision that will end up being appealed most likely and depending on how things go in the general assembly race there might be legislation to at least let the city do what it wants with those statues And the Dillon Rule has come up a whole lot in discussions about changing the minimum wage in cities and municipalities, right? Mm Mm-hmm. It has. Sally Hudson, who won the Democratic primary in the 57th district, and it's looking like she's going to be representing this district come January when the next session starts. Um, She's talked um, many times about how minimum wage, it looks different in each locality, and each locality should be able to set what it wants, because it'll look different in Alexandria versus Charlottesville or Richmond or Roanoke. So she's really been a strong advocate for that and ranked choice voting, which is a little bit of a tangent. But that's also come up in the uh, Senate District uh, 25 with uh, Elliot Harding is really he's challenging longtime incumbent uh, Senator Deeds. And he's been in support of um, Sally Hudson's ranked choice voting. And we'll see if the two of them potentially if he ends up winning, if they ever team up on anything or if she, who she can get rallying behind her to help support legislation about that. Could you tell us a little bit more about Elliot Harding? He is a lawyer here in Charlottesville. Um, he's been born and raised in the area. He's lived all over the 25th district. He considers it home. I was having a conversation with him once where he was talking about how anytime he goes in other areas, if he can't see the Blue Ridge Mountain off in the distance, it kind of freaks him out a little bit. I've felt comforted by the Blue Ridge Mountains in the distance since I've moved here. He feels like the 25th district has changed over the years. He feels like uh, he can probably represent it a little bit better. He used to be associated with the Republican Party, but now he's running as an independent because he said that he's noticed how the the Democratic and the Republican parties have been going through metamorphosis in recent years. And um, he says that he uh, he will be a bit further left than Senator Cree Deeds on certain topics, but he will be a bit further right than Senator Cree Deeds on a few topics. Um, he also says that he did he has critiqued Deeds' stance on a few things over the years and questions where he really stands, um, but he has significantly praised Deeds' advocacy for mental health reform. Um, he says that, like, quote, you won't lose an advocate for that if I'm elected. And there's another race in the 17th Senate District, right? Yes. So former school board member Amy Laufer, she won her Democratic primary this past June. And Senator Bryce Reeves, the incumbent, he won his Democratic primary this past June. The 17 districts is pretty stretched out. So he lives in Spotsylvania. He calls it Spotsy. Apparently that's what locals call it there, I'm learning. And what's interesting to note is that the two of them poll almost about the same numbers of votes in their primary, which speaks to how purple that district is. So I always get excited by these uh, races that are really close because it's you really don't know how it's going to go. I feel like a sports broadcaster with that, but I think those races end up having much more canvassing and grassroots outreach because you know it's so tight. Could you talk about the House of Delegates races as well? So Jennifer Kitchen is the Democratic candidate running against Chris Runyon, the Republican. The 59th district, Matt Ferris is a Republican. He's the incumbent, and he's being challenged by Tim Hickey, a Democrat and a school teacher. And then incumbent delegate Rob Bell, a Republican, is being challenged by Elizabeth Alcorn. She's a retired dentist, and she's really energetic, and she's been out knocking a lot of doors this summer in the heat. 
You've sat down with a lot of candidates running for office in this area. Any standout conversations? A general theme I think I've seen amongst Democratic candidates is flipping districts. And I think we've seen around the state, you over the years, you kind of know where your red strongholds are and your blue strongholds are. And increasingly, certain areas of Virginia have been turning more purple. So um, there's this urgency amongst Republicans that are incumbents to hold down the fort. But then there's this urgency amongst Democrats to, to be like, oh, we, we're going to flip this. We're going to flip this. We're going to get a majority. And I know that outgoing 57th District Delegate Tus- David Toscano, he's been working the last several years to try and help flip other f- districts and reach out to other candidates or recruit other candidates to run for Democratic seats. What impact do you expect these races in the Charlottesville-Albemarle area to have on the Virginia House of Delegates and the Virginia State Senate? Every Democrat that I've talked to says that they've, they're they all really pushing for a Democratic majority. It's also worth noting that One Virginia 2021, uh, the redistricting group that's been advocating for redrawing these maps, it seems likely that in the future elections, there could be newly drawn districts. So with the status quo, this is a, probably the last chance for certain seat configurations to be the way that they are. And it could be different in the next upcoming elections. So I think everyone's kind of aware of that right now, combined with many of the people up for seats right now. If they can keep their seat or get into a seat, they want to help continue to push for redistricting reform. Well, this year is a very crucial election year, and in Virginia, we have elections somewhere in the state every year, so it is very critical to vote every time. I know there is, you can kind of get election fatigue, but these races shape a lot of the things that are important to people in Virginia. I can't stress enough, people really have to get out and vote and try to overcome the fatigue of going to vote every year because... This really matters and is very important. All right. Well, thank you all so much for coming in. Thank you. You're welcome. Charlotte Woods is a reporter with Charlottesville Tomorrow, and Elliot Robinson is the news editor. Find out more and read the latest at charlottesvilletomorrow.org. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Teej FM Network, T-E-E-J dot F-M. WTJU and Teej FM are both the service of the University of Virginia. Opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the University of Virginia. Stay tuned for an interview with Dr. Deborah McDowell, but first we hear from Peter Galaska. Well, here on Soundboard, we check in with state news each week, and we turn now to our friend and journalist, Peter Galaska, based over in the Richmond area. Peter, good morning. Good morning. So you have written a little review of Jeff Thomas's new book. It's The Virginia Way, updated, uh, the updated edition, so looking at things that have happened right. since 2016. Take me through Jeff Thomas's book and what you make of it. 
Yeah, uh, very interesting. Jeff uh, Thomas has uh, popped on the scene several years ago with a, a book that really kind of outlaid, lay out the a lot of the so-called Virginia way and what's wrong with it and how phony it is. I mean, the idea that we're all so gentlemanly that we can be trusted and we, yet we have virtually no limits on like political do- donations and the like. And, um, and, you know, with Bob McDonald being a, a star example, that book came out in 2016 and, and, and got a lot of attention. And, and Jeff, who lives in Richmond and DC, um, has come out with a second book, uh, Virginia way of democracy and power after 2016 by history club, history press. And, um, it sort of updates, it's the same theme theme, but it updates saying everything. And one of the more interesting chapters in it has to do with the university of Virginia. And um, apparently Jeff um, claims that there's actually exists within the admissions office of UVA a kind of financial intelligence unit, which sort of rates, you know, students who either probably wouldn't get in or borderline according to um, their influence and whether their parents uh, uh, pay a lot of money. To this end, a couple of years ago, uh, Thomas got into a real battle with UVA under, under the Freedom of Information Act, where he sought a lot of, you know, admissions material and communications within the admissions office. And he came, he, he got finally won, but a lot of it was redacted. Well, I, I expect that Jeff Thomas runs into it. You said that he, he had some flaps about trying to get access to information. I suspect when you write about the powerful and powerful institutions, they don't always like it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Well, now, a lot of this book also is about uh, donations and influence and gift-giving to lawmakers from Dominion and Oxford oh, yeah. and the other big players. What's that part about? Well, I mean, it goes on. I mean, some of them are familiar familiar faces like Dominion, um, for example. It goes into the bit about the both the Mountain Valley and the Atlantic Coast pipelines and how that is you know, just sort of being slammed through. Uh, Dominion, he has a very interesting section on Dominion about how Dominion wanted to buy South Carolina's leading uh, electric or power utility. And um, when they had a, the CEO of uh, Dominion, Tom Farrell, went down and spoke to the legislature in Columbia, South Carolina, he did not get the same reception he would, would in Virginia because they're just not used to being treated that way. They're not used to having, you know, have, you know, we gave you all this money in donations, therefore you have to do what we want. The uh, South Carolina legislature says, what? <laughs> so anyway, there's a lot of stories like that. He gets into gerrymandering and other things as well. It's, it's a worthwhile read. Yeah. Now, the first edition of that came out right after Bob McDonald's conviction, uh, which was was later overturned uh, for corruption charges. Um, You know, what do we see different now uh, in this? Well, I think the big big thrust of what we're seeing different, which is actually a positive, and that is that um, a lot of, um, not a lot, but a significant minority, a a number, an increasing number of uh, politicians, both mostly Democrats, but some Republicans too, are just saying out and out, I'm not taking Dominion money, I'm not taking corporate money. And um, that's sort of really going to the heart of what the Virginia way seems to be, you know, like, you know, unlimited donations, so long as we supposedly say we gave it to VPAP, you know, Virginia Public Access Project. And that seems to be a major shift that Jeff is bringing out. And if that shift continues, it's going to be uh, a different state. It already is becoming a different state. It's become bluer and more diverse, more, more women involved than before. So it's not really the old boys network it used to be. Right. 
Well, I want to move on to some other stories that, that we have here in the state, including Nick Friedis, one of those mm. uh, boys who's been in the state legislature, but is going to have a much harder slog this time around. What's going on with the Board of Elections and his uh, missed campaign paperwork? Well, you know, first off, Nick Friedis is uh, running in the 30th district. Uh, he's a delegate already. Um, Culpepper. He is an attractive candidate. I mean, he was a Green Beret in, in the Army, and um, he's good-looking. He, he has a lot going for him. He ran um, as a, in the primary for Senate Republicans, um, you know, against Corey Stewart, who he almost beat. I mean, he almost beat uh, and became the, the candidate for uh, Republican uh, candidate for Senate in the last election. But anyway, somehow, somehow, Peters um, did not file the proper paper paperwork on time, at least for uh, re-election. And he kind of went back and everything else. And they did say then the the state said, no, no, you you messed up, and we can't bend the rules for you. So he's gone back at least two times, and he's been told no. And so he could run in as a. I mean, and, and Ridgeway uh, is uh, the Democrat is opposing him. It looks like at the moment he, he may be able to run a uh, write-in campaign, but those are really effective. So it looks like the you know that could be the seat that um, that turns the um, House of Delegates, which now is uh, fifty-one forty-nine Republican, and um, that could change things or help change things. I mean, you get another another you know Democratic term- turnover or win that could change the whole. You know, situation. And ironically, I know some editorial writers have criticized Fritas for blaming everybody but himself for this uh, mess up, which is another interesting little side story. Right, sure. Well, and speaking of the General Assembly, uh, there were some reports this week about red flag laws after the the massacres and shootings mm-hmm. in El Paso and Dayton, and how a number of states, mm-hmm. about a dozen states, have passed these these laws that give law enforcement more authority to to check out people who are showing signs of possible snapping and going on shooting sprees. Um, Virginia right. Virginia had several of those proposed in the special summer session, but that summer session got closed in just a few minutes by the Republican majority. Um, what's mm-hmm. what's the story? here? One of the, the many new controls that people have proposed, especially after the Virginia Beach shooting that killed 12, 12 or 13 people in a municipal building, there was a move by Governor Ralph Northam, a Democrat, to have a special session of the General Assembly. And one of the things he wanted to, to have was a law that would uh, red flag um, <clears throat> someone who is say, mentally ill or is making a threat or is definitely and distinctively a threat, <clears throat> keep in mind that if someone is deemed is mentally ill or schizophrenic or bipolar or whatever and is, is deemed to be really delusional and a threat, they can be TDO'd or temporary detention ordered by a magistrate or judge. It means they have to get mental health. So, I mean, there's something like this already on the books, and it's been there for years. But uh, that's called the red flag thing. So if someone not- identifies an individual as really showing signs, I believe this this, this was in the case in what, either in El Paso or Dayton in the last, the last few days, where the mother of one of the shooters said, wait a minute, I called the police and said she's dangerous, and the, nothing happened. Well, this came up in the Virginia General Assembly. But everything, the whole kit and caboodle was shut down by the Republicans in about 90 minutes. So they're saying they're have a, they want another session after the election in November. So once again, we're just kicking the can down the road, not doing anything. You know, Virginia, especially the Virginia GOP, has historically been very, very opposed to any kind of, of uh, gun regulation, you know, beyond what's absolutely required by, by sort of federal law. Uh, what, what could happen? 
Well, I think as we've just been talking about, I mean, you're seeing more and more uh, the shape up of the elections for the General Assembly. That is key. I mean, if you have democratic control of both parties, you're going to see some form of gun control. And the Republicans have benefited because many of them uh, are from rural areas where guns are more popular. And for obvious reasons, people hunt, people you know are used to them. And um, but their, their attitude has been to shut down any discussion of gun control. No change, period. And um, gerrymandering has helped their case. Well, that's all changing. The state is becoming more diverse. More people for, are moving into urban and suburban areas in the state. They're not from Virginia. They didn't grow up, you know, with the 11-year-old getting to 22 uh, like I did when I grew up in West Virginia. Uh, you know, everybody did. So that's changing. And so that, we may, that changes the attitudes change, then the laws change. And that's, that's, that's what's going to happen. But it's not going to happen immediately. All right, Peter. Well, thanks. Sure. Bye-bye. Peter Galaska is a journalist based in the Richmond area. He writes for the blog Bacon's Rebellion. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Teej FM Network, T-E-E-J dot FM. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center. In our final segment this week, we talked to Dr. Deborah McDowell. Dr. McDowell directs the Carter G. Woodston Institute for African and African American Studies at the University of Virginia. She's also a professor of English. The Carter G. Woodson Center is about to host its second Transcribathon to digitize the papers and speeches of civil rights activist Julian Bond. I sit down with Dr. McDowell to talk about Julian Bond and the importance of preserving his work. Good morning, Dr. McDowell. Thank you so much for talking to us. My pleasure. Could you start out by talking a little bit about Julian Bond's life and activism? Yes, Julian Bond was one of the eminent civil rights activists of the 20th century. His career as an activist and politician spanned over 50 years, and during that time, he was very active in practically every major. Uh, civil rights initiative of the 20th century. He was first elected to the Georgia legislature, so he served in the Georgia legislature for quite a while, and in fact was duly elected, and his case had to go all the way to the Supreme Court because uh, people in the legislature refused to see him because of his opposition to the Vietnam War. So this was really one of the most courageous, uncompromising activists uh, of the 20th century, one of the founding members of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Actually, I could spend our entire conversation enumerating Julian's many achievements. I probably shouldn't leave out, however, his uh, lengthy tenure as chairman of the board of the NAACP. So let me pause because I could literally spend our 10 minutes listing 
Julian's numerous achievements and examples of his passionate activism. And that's why the Carter G. Woodson Institute has decided to create a collection of all of his writings and work over his lifetime, right? The Carter G. Woodson Institute is collaborating with the Center for Digital Editing um, on a a digital project. Uh, We're hoping that will culminate in a digital and print edition called The Essential Julian Bond. And so prior to that, we are involving the public in uh, uh, the second crowdsourced event where we invite the public to join us in transcribing samples from his writings. His um, papers are in VA special collections. He bequeathed his papers an enormous corpus to special collections. And so we are involving the public in the work of transcription. And like you said, this is the second Transcribe-a-thon that you all have hosted. Were there any writings yeah. of his that particularly stood out from the previous Transcribe event? Well, I can say in general, yes, that one of the listeners may be interested to know that people were transcribing Bond's writings from various hubs around the city and at the university. And practically everyone who commented on the process uh, said the same thing. Uh, I'm now, let's say, take as a sample, I was transcribing a speech on health care that Julian Bond wrote in 1970 about the importance of people having uh, health care, affordable health care, and health care being a right and not a privilege. And he could have been writing that in the 90s, or, or I mean, he could have been writing it right now. Uh, or someone would say, oh, I'm reading what Julian Bond has to say about the public school system, and everything he's saying about segregation in the public school system in a speech in 1970 could be written right now. And so people commented again and again on how resonant his work still was. We were focused initially on the speeches, and so that's what people were transcribing and noting uh, one after another that everything he was writing in speeches dating back to the late 60s up through the 70s, uh, that everything in those speeches resonated with conversations um, in the here and now. Could you talk a little bit also about Julian Bond's connection to UVA and to the Carter G. Woodson Institute? Well, Julian Bond was connected first and foremost to the Corcoran Department of History. He taught in the History Department for over 20 years, and conservative estimates are that he taught over 5,000 students during the time he was there, in, particularly in a very popular course called History of the Civil Rights Movement. It was one of those blockbuster courses that enrolled hundreds and hundreds of students, um, all of whom loved Julian Bunn. So his connection to the Woodson Institute uh, was indirect because he taught primarily in the history department. And of course, uh, our students took his courses. Um, the connection most recently concerns um, the Julian Bunn Professor, professorship in Civil Rights and Social Justice, which is held by Professor Kevin Gaines. 
uh, Professor Gaines has a joint appointment between the Woodson Institute and the History Department. So how can people in the community get involved in the Transcribe-a-thon? People can get involved by showing up at one of five sites. Uh, one is 110 Minor Hall, which is where the Woodson Institute is located. Another is the Scholars Lab in uh, Alderman Library. Another is Shenandoah Joe's on Preston Avenue. Um, another transcription site is the McHugh Center in the athletic department. Another one is the Virginia Center for the Book, and that is in the Jefferson School. And uh, people who wish to um, transcribe from their homes can do so. If they go on to our website, they will find links to signing on to the platform from the page. So literally anyone with a computer, no matter where they are, in the world can transcribe. But if you're interested in joining the fellowship of transcribers, and people seem to enjoy that last year, so you can show up at any one of those transcription hubs and be able to transcribe. This is one of the best ways of honoring one of our warriors for civil rights and social justice, and it is one of the best ways of keeping his memory alive. Well, thank you so much for talking to us, Dr. McDowell. We really You're very it. welcome. The Julian Bond Transcribathon will take place on August 15th. You can find out more about this event by visiting woodson.as.virginia.edu. That's woodson.as.virginia.edu. From there, look under the Events tab for Julian Bond Transcribathon and RSVP to participate. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Mary Garner McGee. Our theme song is Choga Beat by Marina Lasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. Catch us at WTJU.net or our podcast home at TJFM. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. Have a great week. <laughs>